Rose's and my son John has um, a few books that he's working on. Uh, there are, you're, they're usually one page long chapter books and I think there's about three or four of them but my favorite by far is a book that's entitled Baby Bullies. John has been collecting stories of baby bullies um, in his life ever since I think it was about four years ago. And so he would have been eight, and um, Conlin, the kid that the first chapter, chapter one is dedicated, in fact, chapter one is called Conlin. Conlin was about four at the time. And um, as we often do with my friends, uh, Rose's friends, we get together with the families who, um, were whose children were part of the same daycare as ours were a whole long time ago. And so there's probably at any gathering about 10 of us and maybe 12 to 15 of the kids. And you know, some of our families, our friends have had kids since um, our kids were little when, you know, like 11 years ago at this point. And so what happens at these events is we hang out and we have a cookout and we talk and the kids just kind of run in a flock. You've seen these kind of gatherings before, right? They run in a flock back and across the lawn behind you, and they ask for juice, and you tell them to get away and scram, and then they go back out. You feed, you throw them hot dogs, and then they keep playing. You turn on the water spigot. And so that's what we were doing. So one day, um, John, it, while I'm talking to our friend Deb, John comes up to me. He's about eight, and his eyes are welled up with tears. And he says, Mama, Conlon is being mean to me. He's eight. This kid is four. <laughs> and so I look at John and I'm thinking, okay, we're raising John to be a sensitive kid. And I like that about him. But every once in a while, my grandfather, who was a World War II vet, and, you know, would call me a dummy. There's every once in a while when I'm parenting my son, there's this part of me that wants my son to be sensitive. And then my grandfather comes out. And my grandfather came out. And I said, John! suck it up, <laughs> go back, go away, go away, you know, I told him to get lost, I wasn't, and I, I went back to talking to Deb, 20 minutes go by, and out of my peripheral vision, I see John crying and running across the lawn with Conlon chasing him <laughs> with a baseball bat, <laughs> and I, I intervened at that point, and I realized, here's what had happened. John knows, he's a good kid, he knows that he's not supposed to yet, you know, yell at other little kids or physically stop other little kids, and if there's a problem, if other, one other kid, little kid is acting out, you're supposed to go and talk to a parent so that they can take care of it, which is exactly what John did. He went to talk to a parent so a parent would take care of it, I told him to suck it up, and Colin continued for the next half hour to chase him with a bat. That's what happened. And when I rewound the tape, here's what I think this probably happens to you as well. In my mind, children don't start turning mean until maybe about, you remember, you were in school, you were a child once, what is it, third grade? That's when you start, but four-year-olds, four-year-olds, they're cute, right? Conlon was adorable. He had this nice blonde hair, this sweet little angelic face, great big blue beady eyes. And so in my mind, he's an innocent. 
you know, so you don't have to, so in my mind, what John was telling me, even though that was John's experience, that Conlon was chasing him with a baseball bat, I had a belief, which is no child who has not yet gotten into third grade is going to go around bullying people, let alone a, a four-year-old. So I, because I already knew in advance that this is how the world was, was not allowing John's experience to influence what I thought even though it was ha happening right in front of me, right? That actually, no, in reality, Conlon seriously was chasing John with a bat. That even, but I wouldn't believe it because in my mind, that's not, how, that's not how the world works. I don't think I'm the only one who goes around like this. I think all of us have certain beliefs that we hold as truth, and we filter our experience of the world through these beliefs. And this is something that Christians have been famous for. The Bible says the world was made in seven days. That is why if you dig up a dinosaur, it was planted there by some conspiracist to prove that the world wasn't created in seven days. It was in the Bible. I believe the Bible is literally true. Therefore, reality, if it doesn't fit in with this book, cannot be true. The book is right. And that's how I remain faithful. That's a way of being orthodox. Women, St. Paul says right here, should not open their mouths in church. So if you have a female priest, you are in big trouble because it says right here in the Bible, women should be silent in church. Even if you have women who are telling you that they've been called by God to, to preach the gospel, can't be, because here's the book. My experience only goes through the filter of what I believe to see, be true in scripture. And here's the thing, often what we do is we think that that is the way that we are faithful. When we deny our experience of the outside world, if it doesn't line up with what we believe, then what do we do? We, we choose our beliefs over our experience, and that is the way we prove ourselves to be faithful. That has been something that happens in the Christian tradition. Not only in the Christian tradition, it's one of the things that's least attractive about religious people, I think. And here's the other thing that's wonderful, and this is why it's timely today to talk about, to believe that your experience is irrelevant and you have to filter everything through the lens of scripture and line that up with what you, ex what you experience in the world and chuck out experiences that don't line up with scripture. I'm going to tell you this morning that that thought is unscriptural. That very idea is unscriptural. And that is what's going on in Acts. Here we have Peter. And Peter is a follower of Jesus. And Peter's understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and this is first century Palestine, is that you must convert to Judaism. You must become circumcised. You must follow the law and then understand Jesus to be the Messiah. But you have to be Jewish. You can't just let anybody in. That's anarchy, right? And so here we have Peter, and he is a faithful person. And he has this experience 
where he is summoned to the house of a Roman centurion soldier named Cornelius. Let me explain to you. Whatever your bad guy is, ladies and gentlemen, whoever your bad guy, think of your bad guy. This is Cornelius being summoned to the house of the enemy. Whether it is you come up with your enemy. I don't know, who, who's it going to be? Al-Qaeda or Donald Trump? Pick somebody, the bad guy. Think of who it is. You, you fill it in. Obama, I don't know. Insert it where you need to. Peter is being summoned to the house of the enemy. Cornelius is a servant of Rome. Rome is the occupying, colonizing government over Israel. And when he gets here, he is informed that Cornelius and his family desire to be baptized because Jesus has called them too. And here's the next thing that Peter says happened. So he's standing there in disbelief that this could possibly be, and he has this experience of seeing the Holy Spirit descend upon these people. And the way I understand that is suddenly being able to counter in the enemy, seeing the face of Christ, seeing the divinity that is in Cornelius and his family suddenly revealed in front of Peter. And here is the thing that sometimes we miss. Peter is suddenly taken back by the fact that the Holy Spirit is acting outside of the belief system of the Christian church. How dare God act outside of our orthodoxy? And he sees this happening, and that is when Peter baptizes Cornelius and his family. Sometimes we get this backwards. Sometimes we think that people to be acceptable or chosen by God have to be received in by us and maybe somehow blessed by me. And after we have done that, then they are acceptable to God. That the sacraments somehow imbue acceptability on people. And this story in Acts, what is happening is Peter is saying, I already saw it. <laughs> God already clearly chose Cornelius and his family through Christ. And all I did the baptism comes next. So what am I going to do? Say no to God? Am I going to call dirty what God has already called clean? I had to baptize them. I had to respond to God saying yes to these people that I personally would have said adamantly no to. And that is the kind of orthodoxy that Peter is being pressed to embrace. This is hard news. Whenever you or I are setting down a line where we say, here is what's acceptable to Jesus. You have to meet these requirements to be part of the Christian community. Jesus, because he just is this way, always takes whatever line you set down and puts it 20 yards out farther than the one you laid out. That's how it works, which is why I'm going to bring it back to the gospel for a second. It is the Great Commandment Sunday. There is one commandment that Jesus gave 
his disciples? Just one. Was it convert to Christianity and become an Episcopalian and pay your tithe? Was that the commandment? No, it was not the commandment. Right? Was it go and get baptized? It was not the commandment. Was, it, was get people to come to Grace Church the commandment? That was not the commandment. What was the commandment? Love one another. Right. So Jesus says, love one another. And I, in church this morning, I go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I am absolutely going to love people. And then I go out and I'm like, well, except in this case. Because in this case, there are all kinds of things that have to be done before this person can be loved by God. To which Jesus says, love one another. That's the only command. Okay, I'll do it. I'll go out a little farther. Except, there's always a but. And Jesus has answered to every single exception that you make. And the reason you make your exceptions to the rule of why you cannot love this person, you know why? It's because you're moral. It's your morality that prevents you from loving certain people. Because you are a good person. That is why you that's why I refuse to love certain people. When I am, when I am uh, arm wrestling Jesus about who's in and who's out, Think about it. Anytime I turn on the news, I have this great big um, arm wrestling match with Jesus about who, who can be loved and who can't be loved. And every time I lose, because here's the great commandment, love one another. That is the only commandment. And so strangely, as is outlined in our story from Acts today, our orthodoxy as people of faith is to give up our orthodoxy. And that is a really hard thing to do. Because as soon as you think you have given up your pious moral orthodoxy about who should be allowed in and who should be allowed out, as soon as you think you've given that up, you really haven't. It grows back like a weed. There's always a reason when you think about clenching up your heart against somebody, regardless of who, you'll have a million reasons why this person is unacceptable. It grows back by, like a weed. And every time you get to that point when you know because you're a moral person who you should not love, Jesus reminds you with the great commandment, no exception, love one another. And so scripture is constantly calling you to listen to your experience again and again and again. And every time you decide to call somebody unclean or unacceptable because you're a moral person, scripture calls you to let that go. Because God's love is so all-encompassing of everybody in the world, it's a scandal to you. It is a scandal to me. But the only way through the door to Christ is to constantly go back to the great commandment. It's the only one we have. Love one another. Amen. Amen.